Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right, no guest again for the second consecutive week. And actually, we are late this week. It's Thursday and not Tuesday. So why is that the case? Well, circumstances have conspired against us. Actually, there was going to be a bonus pod anyway today, this Thursday. It's just turned into the <laughs> the main pod for this week. We've had an incredible run of guests over the last six months or so. And it's not easy keeping the schedule going like that, to be honest. You know, sometimes, as I said, events can get away from you. And we've had several cancellations over the last couple of weeks, which have thrown an unfortunate spanner in the works. But I'm going to take the opportunity of making this bonus pod into something slightly more substantial than it would otherwise have been. The original point of this bonus podcast was going to be to tell you about the forthcoming pledge drive that we have, the annual pledge drive on Patreon. But actually this year it's going to be widened to include people supporting the podcast not through Patreon and just through direct donations. So we'll get into that in detail shortly. Before we do that, there are some more things that I want to say about Bandcamp. Last week's solo pod was just about Bandcamp, basically, and there have been developments since then, and there are things that I want to add to my comments on last week's show, so I'll do that too. But before we do that, there's just a bit of housekeeping to get through on stuff we have coming up on the label and Bandcamp Friday tomorrow. So hopefully you'll be listening to this on Thursday, but if you're listening to this on Friday, then Bandcamp Friday being today. So what we've got going on is a 50% off flash sale today only or for Bandcamp Friday only. So everything on the Hot Flush Bandcamp store is half price, including all merch, all vinyl, all digital items, everything 50% off. So if you go to the show notes, there's a bit more detail on that. But generally speaking, hotflush.bandcamp.com, 50% off everything this Friday, 3rd of November, only. Additionally to that, today, Thursday, we listed a limited edition version of my collaboration with Amp Fiddler, limited edition vinyl, I should say. So that originally came out in 2007, all the way back in 2007. It's called If I Dub. 
And like I said, me and Amp Fiddler, the 2023 edition is a full color, unbelievably nice looking printed sleeve, numbered with a pen and signed also with a pen by me. There's a limited number of them only available on Bandcamp. So again, hotflush.bandcamp.com if you want to grab one of those. And then finally, my mixtape, which comes out on the 10th of November, is up for pre-order, but there are additional formats on Bandcamp. So there is a CD, and the CD is name your price, postage and packing only, because, you know, why not? And a cassette. It's the first time I've ever done a cassette. Much against my better judgments. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I love cassettes. Cassettes are just the ultimate nostalgia, warm, fuzzy kind of a feeling format to add to your <laughs> release in 2023. So yeah, those are available now for pre-order and all of that stuff will be factored into the 50% sale. So if you want to pre-order your stuff, you do get 50% off tomorrow, this Friday, as part of that flash sale. So that's all very generous of us, isn't it? I mean, there's also tons of great catalog vinyl up there, stuff like the Loafer remix of Candy Floss, that's an original pressing. There's only a few of those left. Some limited edition sleeve copies of Recondite 12s, classic Recondite 12s. You know, loads of things where there's like three or four of them left on the site. And uh, yeah, I guess they're going to go tomorrow. Okay, final bit of housekeeping. Just to say that the second episode of my residency on Swoo FM aired last night, Wednesday night. You can listen back to it on the rinse.fm site. I'll stick a link to the show notes to that episode. It's two hours of um, pretty banging tunes, actually. It's so much fun, I have to say, doing a regular radio show. It's really, really enjoyable putting it together. It's quite a lot. I mean, like 40-odd tracks, even if it's only every month. I mean, I can't believe people that do a, a weekly... I remember I used to do that years ago, but it's, um, it's a serious undertaking, two hours of music. Like I said, even if it's only every month. So, yeah, really enjoying doing that. And... Um, I think you'll enjoy the show if you haven't checked it out already. So yeah, link in the show notes, but rinse.fm is the site. Swoo FM is a Bristol station, by the way, which was acquired by Rinse last year. And it airs on FM in the Bristol area, but obviously also online. And uh, yeah, you probably don't live in Bristol, so online's going to be the way to listen to it. But check it out. I think you will enjoy it. Okay, on to Bandcamp. So last week's episode... I spoke for, I don't know, 40 odd minutes, basically pulling together a whole load of reading that I'd done by different people, different commentators, and uh, some really great analysis actually by that guy, Andrew Thompson, who I'm not sure if we completely see eye to eye on the political side of this. And uh, he followed me on Twitter actually after I released that episode and I was just kind of waiting for him to tweet at me telling me how wrong I was about everything but he didn't do that so uh, I don't know what he thought of it but just generally his work on pulling together information from those huge data sets that they acquired there's links in the previous episode show notes to the various pieces of analysis they did which were really really illuminating you know and um, just super interesting insights into the behavior of users on the site in particular and um, the different kinds of users as well by which I mean the, the fans of different genres I mean that was a super interesting aspect of it to me was how different kinds of music fans support their artists and one of the major revelations 
was that dance music fans really don't at all in comparison. You know, they're much less generous. And my hypothesis with regards to that was that there's just far more DJs buying the music, but DJs are buying the music for a specific purpose rather than fans who have a direct uh, sort of emotional relationship with the artists that they're trying to support. Like dance music fans are generally speaking DJs who are buying a track to play in their DJ set for a kind of functional reason rather than an emotional one. And if that's true, then it completely makes sense that they would be less inclined to pay more for a release or for a track or whatever. That's completely normal, I think. So that's probably the reason I would I would posit. Anyway, what I didn't include really in last week's episodes was any serious discussion of the unionization aspect to it. Now, I considered doing that, but I basically bottled out at the end of it because I figured I was saying enough stuff which was going to be a bit incendiary already. And I thought adding a layer of union criticism to it (laughs) probably wouldn't be helpful. But I feel like I kind of have to now because the unionization thing or the, the Bandcamp United union really are dominating the media coverage of this, certainly the music media coverage. They are pretty disciplined in their messaging and they've been pretty smart in some of the messaging they've been coming out with in the last few days. And, you know, the kind of people who are writing in the music press, I think are the kind of people who are going to be predisposed to giving a union some good press or some sympathetic press anyway. And, you know, that's fine and it's absolutely understandable, but... I think the uh, you know the music press is dominated by a certain kind of political outlook, and it's a political outlook which is shared by the union movement overall. Anyway, so okay, what's going on here? The big headline from much of this stuff has been around the layoffs. So, Song Trader has supposedly offered around half of the existing staff contracts to work at the new acquired band camp, and that's on the face of it not great, doesn't look great. And it's obviously something which the union's not at all happy about. I mean, the issue of union recognition is also obviously massively up in the air, and we'll get onto that. But let's just look at the overall staffing levels as has developed over time. Now, we mentioned last week that Bandcamp is profitable, or it certainly says it's profitable anyway, and it has said it's been profitable for a number of years. But it has been reported that before COVID, or say up to the end of 2019, the total number of staff at Bandcamp was about 50, roughly 50. Epic bought it in 2022. And by the time the sale to SongTrader rolled around, the staff had grown to over 120. So that's a very significant increase in staffing. That's like nearly 150% increase in staff. We also mentioned last week that layoffs in the tech sector have been widespread. Now, why is that the case? Well, 2022 was a really bad year for big tech, both in terms of sales and in terms of stock prices. There was a pretty steep decline in tech stocks over the course of 2022. And revenues declined with those stock prices. And obviously, those two things have a relationship. Now, as mentioned, there have been really significant layoffs across the sector this year. But what's happened in recent weeks is there's been a round of earnings reports which have been extraordinarily positive 
across big tech, and in particular Meta, which had a really savage round of layoffs and a restructuring of capital spending, but has reported just enormous revenue growth, enormous sales growth. Um, they've invested really heavily in AI across their advertising platform, and the results are pretty amazing. But most importantly, that's in an environment of significantly reduced staffing. So what does that say? Well, these companies have realized that they were overmanned. They had too many staff, basically. And as kind of bad as that sounds, that's just the reality of where the industry is at. There was overhiring coming out of COVID and there's now a period of consolidation. So if you look at Bandcamp, that's exactly what's happened at Bandcamp. Like there was a pretty lean and effective, efficient company going into 2020, going into the pandemic. There was very significant expansion under Epic. I'm not completely sure what they achieved with that because there were incremental improvements in the platform, but nothing that you could say is really fundamental. And maybe there were ongoing projects which had yet to come to fruition. But I mean, you could, it's pretty difficult to argue that they got value for money in that increase of staffing, certainly in the short term. And obviously, we don't have published accounts for any of this because you know they're internal and private. But you'd have to say that it's pretty likely that the company that SongTrader bought was not profitable, given that expansion, right? And you know, we talked last week on the show about why Bankout might have been able to be profitable versus a company like Spotify, which is completely growth-driven and over-invests in growth to the extent that it consistently loses money, not all the time, but most of the time. So it seems pretty likely that what SongTrader said about ne the necessity to cut costs was accurate, at least up to a point. So I think we really need to be careful about demonizing the new owners here, because what's important? Well, the platform's important, frankly. Like, what do users care about? I mean, if you look at the Twitter threads on this stuff, people will say, well, yeah, a big part of the reason I love Bandcamp is the fact that it's an inclusive company. It's a company which takes ethics seriously. And yeah, okay, maybe. But if you look at the behavior of users as a whole, Bandcamp Fridays is the day where the platform doesn't get paid. And those are the biggest sales days. So if people really gave a shit about the platform, that would not be the case, would it? There would be much more of a willingness to donate to the platform, to support the platform financially, you know? But the average Bandcamp user is a music fan. It's not a Bandcamp fan. And they're using Bandcamp because Bandcamp enables them to give more money to their favorite artist. So I think there is uh, some romanticization of the platform, which is, again, look, I, yeah, I'm someone who loves the platform. I mean, I don't buy music on Bandcamp Fridays because I want more of my money that I spend on music to go to Bandcamp because I think it's an important utility in the underground music and the independent music sphere. I love the editorial and all of the staff that I've had interactions with have been great people, unambiguously great people. So I'm not in any way minimizing their contribution at all. The point that I'm making really is just that there needs to be a much more of a level-headed debate and a much more accurate debate or a commitment to trying to be accurate about it. Anyway, let's talk about the union, or rather, let's begin by talking about unions generally, because like I said, 
the Bandcamp United Union has really dominated the media coverage of this and is really owning the narrative, I think, to a large extent. But this is really an anomaly because unionization in the service sector, which is where this is, is where this sits in the economy, is extremely rare. So the decline of the trade union sector and the decline of trade unions generally is as symbolic, I think, as anything else in the rise or the commensurate rise in, let's call it explicitly market-oriented capitalism, which has really taken over, I guess, since the 1980s. But actually, the decline in unions started earlier than that. It's been in structural decline really since the 1950s. The peak of union density in the workforce was in the late 1950s. And it sloped down in the 60s and 70s, accelerated significantly in the 1980s, which, as mentioned, was the birth of Reaganism and that flavour of economics. So there was an acceleration in the 1980s, and since then it's kind of got back on a trend that was established in the 60s and 70s. So why has that happened? Well, basically it's because of the industrialization. That's the kind of broader trend which started in the 1960s and continued probably until 2020 and has shown some signs of reversing since then, but it's from a pretty low base. So basically more than half the industrial jobs disappeared in the United States between 1970 and 2020 and quite a lot of them had already gone in the previous 10 years to that. Um, where did those jobs go? Well, they went to the service sector. And really, the service sector of the economy lends itself less obviously, I think, to the primary function of a trade union, which is collective bargaining. That's traditionally the main thing that a trade union did. Bargain on behalf of the workers with management to get the best terms and conditions possible. And industrial labour, which is to say lots of men doing the same thing, really lends itself to that kind of approach, right? Because, I mean, there is a contract which can be applied to the vast majority of staff who are doing similar things or at least can easily be categorised into doing similar things and can be bargained on behalf of in a pretty neat and easy to understand way. That completely makes sense. And it completely makes sense in that kind of working environment for the workers to be organized in that kind of a way, 100%. In the service sector, it's much less obvious how that's going to work, right? There is a much lower level of commonality between the work that different members of staff are doing. And therefore, there is much more of a, I guess, motivation for individual staff members to want to negotiate their own salary. And I think that's also understandable. And in that kind of a context, a union just becomes much less, much less appealing, I think, to staff. It becomes much less obvious that that's something which is required in the workplace. Now, you can see that as a kind of pull factor, but there have also been push factors here. And those have been largely in the form of government action, anti-union government action, and anti-union action from management, from companies basically. So over time, there's been various changes of the law to make it more difficult to unionise, to reduce the obligation of companies to recognise unions, to raise the barrier, to raise the bar, and generally speaking, make the whole thing much more difficult to get started. And in the context of a shift, a structural shift in the economy towards industries which don't have 
pre-existing unions, that's obviously going to be effective, right? In discouraging workers from organizing in that kind of a way. I would argue there's another factor at play here, which relates to the shift to service sectors and the service sector work and the associated, I guess, decline in attractiveness for collective bargaining. And that is a general move, I think, which we've seen on the hard left of politics, just on the left of politics more generally, away from being a class-oriented political movement towards being a movement which is much more focused on identity and social liberalism, social liberal, socially liberal policies. Because those things, I think, are genuinely attractive to the kinds of surface sector workers that might be less attracted initially by a collective bargaining offer, but more attracted by the opportunity to express their political opinions in an organised way in the workplace. I think that makes a lot of sense. But those workers are more likely to be middle class than those workers that were populating unions previously, which is to say they're more likely to be educated, more likely to be college graduates, more likely to be postgraduates. And those sorts of views correlate directly with that kind of attainment and those kinds of elevated salary levels. But that group is smaller than the pool of workers that was previously a realistic target for unionisation. So in that context, it's not surprising that the overall level has dropped if there's less of a need to bargain collectively, which is inherently something which is universal or at least uh, at least is going to be a primary motivating factor to just about any worker who would benefit from joining a union previously. And more of an emphasis on the political stuff, which is pretty divisive, actually. Like, there's a very substantial political divide, as we all know, in the West right now. And if we're talking about America, it's a very stark polarised divide. And if your union is sitting squarely on one side of that fence well, then it just lessens the appeal of it, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And we know that the economic circumstances of people who, in 2023, take what would traditionally have been expected to be a working class mentality politically. Obviously, the old labels of left and right don't really mean a lot now. But as political orientation has become primarily focused on social stuff, the attitudes have flipped. So, it's really clear that there just isn't much in the way of broad worker solidarity at all. If you're talking about the struggle between labour and management, you know, given that whole picture, it's not at all surprising that union density has declined to the extent that it has. All that being said, it's not completely clear exactly what an effect unionisation has on an organisation. There is conflicting research on this and basically all the research that's taken place on unionisation and unions, generally speaking, has to be taken with a pinch of salt because all of it is, to some extent, politically motivated. Like, there is a massive body of research funded by the labour movement and an equally massive body of research funded by uh, non-aligned sources, shall we say, but, you know, there is bias everywhere here. So there is some research which suggests that unionisation increases productivity, that is through better safety standards at work and a reduced amount of staff turnover. That seems to be fairly clear, certainly the staff turnover thing. But whether that necessarily translates into productivity, I think that's much more of an open question. 
on the other side of a ledger, there's research which suggests that unionization of a company's workforce correlates inversely with the stock price. And at the end of the day, business has to attract capital. And if it doesn't, then, well, that's bad for the company long term. And ultimately, that means it's bad for the long term interests of the staff, too. You know, if you're talking about job security and the ability of, you know, a company to look after its workers, well, money's important, right? So, like I said, all of this has to be taken with a pinch of salt. And you've really got to try and keep an open mind, I think, when dealing with stuff like this. And a lot of it is, I think, just completely subjective to the organisation involved, basically. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what makes a union effective? There's been a couple of pretty good examples, contrasting examples, actually, which are pretty illuminating, actually, in recent months right up to the minute, in fact, uh, in the American economy, which is useful because we are talking about an American company in Bankamp. But you will have read about the writers' strike in Hollywood, no doubt. There's also been an auto workers' strike going on at the same time. Now, this is a basically a perfect microcosm of traditional union work. That is to say, an industrial workforce, which is unionized in the traditional manner versus a service sector union. And both of them trying to increase pay, basically. I mean, other things too, but I mean, pay is the most important thing in those two disputes. So what happened? Well, the writers eventually settled on a 5% pay increase this year, and then it was a total of 12%, but over three years. And factor in the fact that they lost basically six months of pay this year when they were on strike on no pay. So that's basically a below the rate of inflation pay rise. So they went on strike, lost six months of pay, and they settled on a real terms pay cut. What happened to the auto workers? Well, they're still settling because it's a dispute with different companies, but they're looking at around about 15%, but that's in one year. So that's a one year pay increase of 15% versus an increase of 12% over three years. Now, what's the difference between those two situations? Well, the writers have no leverage, really, and the auto workers have a lot of leverage, which is to say that there are loads and loads of writers. There are a million people, almost literally, standing behind every writer ready to take their position. And, you know, let's face it, writing is skilled work, but it's not work which you need a qualification to do at all, or even a set of accurately measurable skills. 
Auto workers, on the other hand, that is the absolute textbook definition of industrial skilled labour of a sort that can be directly measured. Like, what can you do in this job is directly measurable. It's quantifiable in a way that writing is just not. There's no way of predicting what a writer is going to produce over time. Not accurately, anyway. There's no way you can. There's no way that you can predict whether a writer is going to come up with a culture-shifting piece of work. And actually, a lot of the secondary requirements that they were trying to get pushed through was just to make writing into kind of more of an industrial job, which is to say increasing the mandatory number of writers working on a given project and really just doing stuff which is, you know, doesn't really make any artistic sense, frankly. And this is a a typical problem where the 20th century or even 19th century practices of industrial labour collide with knowledge work, basically, or creative work, or however you want to put it. those two things are slightly different, but you'd know what I'm getting at. That category of work is just not really compatible with the old style of collective bargaining in the way that traditional industrial work is. It's just not. And as a result, you have poor performance. You have less leverage and you have worse results, basically. So in what context are unions effective? Well, you need a high degree of union density in the workforce and you need leverage over management, which is to say you ideally need a shortage of the supply of the labour that your members are fulfilling, right? And in the service sector, that shortage just doesn't really exist. Even in a context of nearly full employment, if you take the figures at face value in the United States, there is just not that shortage of skills in the economy which gives a union leverage in their negotiations with management. There just isn't in the service sector at all. And in the absence of that kind of leverage, then there's only going to be so much that you can achieve as a union. So with Bandcamp, and uh, I've been talking in general terms for quite a while now, I I realise. But in the case of Bandcamp, the union is new. It only came into existence this year. But the key thing is when a company changes hands, there is an opportunity for the new owner to restructure in a way that would be more difficult otherwise. So the new owner is SongTrader, as we've discussed. And why would they wish to maintain the recognition of a trade union in their newly acquired small company? Well, I mean, there are arguments in favour. If they were really taking labour relations seriously, then you could make the case for keeping that sort of relationship positive and maybe even nurturing it, actually. But, you know, we've already mentioned what the situation was with the staffing levels. And one of the key demands of the union in their negotiation with Epic, and then I think they've made public in their dialogue with SongTrader, was that there are no redundancies at all, which is to say that all staff members were going to get an offer of employment. And I just think that's realistic at all in any kind of a way. It's completely normal, unfortunately, for companies to discourage unionization, as we mentioned earlier. And in this kind of a situation where there is an opportunity, as I said, to restructure, then a highly predictable, unfortunate, but highly predictable strategy for management would be to break the back of the union via redundancies. And by the looks of things, that's what they've done. So none of the 
bargaining committee have been offered jobs, which seems like a pretty unsubtle way of saying we're not going to recognise your union going forward. And a key thing to remember here is for the union to exist, there needs to be a 50% mandate from staff, or rather, let's be specific about this, there needs to be an election at which a 50%, a straight majority, votes in favour of unionising. And to get that election, there needs to be 30% of staff sign a petition to get that election to happen. Considering that only just over half of the previous cohort of employees, that 120-odd people, only about half of those were in the union, you'd think that it would be fairly easy via redundancies or via just people not being offered contracts of a new company, it would be pretty easy to remove the union and then ensure that the remaining staff aren't going to vote for a new one. Now, as I said, that's an unfortunate strategy and it's not one that I'm endorsing. I'm just saying that it's not surprising that it's happened and it's absolutely predictable. But it's not necessarily reflective of the outlook for the company as a whole or the continuing efficacy of the company for artists and users at all. Those two things definitely do not necessarily correlate. And there seems to be uh, an assumption that they do, but it absolutely doesn't follow. So as mentioned, Bandcamp grew into the platform that we all love prior to 2020. So that was chugging along with roughly the same stuff that it's going to have going forward and did just fine, right? Having doubled in size, staff-wise, more than doubled in size, incrementally improved things, really not by much, I don't think. I mean, there have been some improvements, but I mean, it's window dressing, I think, at best. It's pretty easy to make the argument that nothing really much is going to change here in a negative kind of sense by making these sorts of changes. Now, obviously, the devil's in the detail, and we will see over the coming weeks and months what the changes to the service are and what, if any, song traders plans for growth and development of the platform, what they are and how they come to fruition. But I just don't think it's credible to say that what they've done so far warrants the kind of hysterical reaction that we've seen in some cases. And I think it's largely due to the emotive nature of having a trade union in the news, basically, because there are good reasons to lament the decline of the union movement and there are good reasons to want a union to succeed but it's just not a prerequisite at all. And the kind of restructuring that's been done, I just don't think in any way points to a foregone conclusion as to the decline and ultimate demise of the platform at all, in any kind of a way, really. Because you know, as we talked about last week, Bandcamp is a low-tech platform. It is a great solution running on old tech, and it just doesn't need the amount of staff that had been taken on to keep running in the way that we like it. As for the editorial side, it's been reported that only two out of the five editorial staff, permanent editorial staff, have been laid off. So that's not a gutting of that department at all. And again, we'll see how this pans out, but it's just not true to say that they've sacked all the editorial staff and the editorial is going to be non-existent going forward. That's just not accurate at all. So yeah, we'll see. Now, we talked a bit about Song Traders' potential strategy and why they're doing this on the last episode. Additionally to Bandcamp, they acquired 7Digital, which is a download platform, last year. So they've obviously got some business model in mind of leveraging platforms with non-exclusive rights to catalogue for their broader licensing activities. That's a hypothesis of mine. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's 
seems it seems to be plausible in their outlook. Now, what I didn't realise and what I didn't say last week was that as part of the takeover deal, Epic and Song Trader agreed a licensing aspect as part of the sale. So Bandcamp users' music can still be used within Epic's titles, Epic's games, for example, Fortnite. Now, this is a big question mark for me because, to my knowledge anyway, there was nothing in the terms and conditions of using Bandcamp which automatically allowed Epic to use music which was uploaded to Bandcamp in their games, in their titles. And if there had been, I'm 100% sure that someone would have smelt it out and there would have been a massive song and dance about it. So in the absence of that, what can that licensing deal mean? I just don't know. In March this year, there was a release of a Bandcamp curated station on Fortnite, which used independent music via Bandcamp curated by Bandcamp, and that's in of itself slightly opaque, but supposedly curated by Bandcamp, which appeared on Fortnite. But surely, and I'm, again, this is, uh, I'm reaching here a bit, but surely the terms of the licensing for that music to be used in Fortnite, that must have been negotiated separately because you would have to, because there's nothing in the Bandcamp terms and conditions to my knowledge. And again, I'm sure there, I'm sure we would have found out about it if there was, there's nothing in there which automatically allows Epic to use music in a commercial way. I might be wrong about that. And if I am wrong, then drop me a message on Twitter or jump up in the Discord and correct me. But it seems to me that these things can't be binding. Like the rights for the music on Bandcamp still needs to be negotiated. In particular, the publishing side would need to be negotiated. Because even if you were to upload a recording to Bandcamp, then theoretically you could imagine there would be some mechanism which would automatically allow them to use that recording for other purposes, but that would never apply to the publishing. So there's got to be some layer here which requires further explanation at the very least, right? This is not clear to me at all. And yeah, like I said, if anyone listening has insight on this, then yeah, please reach out because I have tried to make sense of this and I really can't. So yeah, but there is obviously a nascent business model here. If it's, if they've made two fairly major acquisitions in a similar area, so that's Seven Digital and, and Bandcamp, they're obviously up to something, but what it is, I just don't know. What does it mean for the platform though? Well, as we mentioned last week, there's no reason for SongTrader to run it down at all, quite the opposite. In fact, if they want more catalogue flowing to them through it, then they're going to want to build it, right? They're going to want to grow it. And there's definitely areas that could be improved, massive areas that could be improved. I was just going through it yesterday, and the tagging of artists on Bandcamp is just non-existent. Like, there's such a big thing in modern music, uh, in the wider DSP ecosystem, to use artist tagging to widen the reach of a release. And you you can't do that on Bandcamp. There's only one artist page that a release ever shows up on. And you can use the uh, the tagging system, which is a bit clunky and really not that focused at all. But I mean, that is no substitute for enabling a release to show up on all of the artist pages that are relevant in the way that it does on Apple or Spotify or whatever, Beatport, name your platform, this 
applies and it's super important and it's just actually informs the strategy of record labels and artists in fact independent artists too it actually informs the way music is made to a large extent i mean having featured artists on your record it's just a hugely important thing now in terms of putting a release together and building the strategy for a release so the fact that this is not a thing on bandcamp is just a huge gaping hole in the efficacy of the platform and you know as i was mentioning the the actual tag system they have really could be much better designed i mean for example there could be a list of approved tags that you could apply to a release which could perhaps be verified in some kind of a way i mean that's a that's a classic potential use for ai isn't it having a ai algorithm assessor piece of music that you're uploading and then tell you whether you've tagged it correctly but there could be a like i said even if it's quite a long list which would then really aid music discovery on the platform that would be much more i think preferable than the current system which is completely ad hoc and quite impenetrable actually i think for users although you know you get the hang of it after a while but it just just could be made much more simple so it's definitely low-hanging fruit here i think for song trader if they're vaguely serious, which they might be, you know, we just don't know. The truth is we just don't know. And for all of the above reasons, we should keep an open mind because what they've done is really quite normal for an acquiring company. And they're obviously building some sort of nascent conglomerate, which they have big plans for. So what I would say is, let's be open-minded about this. Let's not be hysterical. Let's not be taken in by the romantic notions of organised labour, as easy as it is to be, I realise. And I know some people listening to this are not going to like what I've had to say about unions. In fact, they've probably turned off already, to be honest. But honestly, I don't think the situation is, is necessarily anywhere near as bad as it's been made out in quite a lot of places. So let's see what happens, shall we? Let's see what happens. There is so much potential for the platform to be made better. So much potential, I would say. And you could argue that it hasn't been managed very well over the last decade or so. But what it has done is built a user base which is quite passionate about it. So, yeah, let's see how it goes. Right, that took longer than I anticipated, but that's okay. This is a long-form podcast. We can take as long as we want. Before we go, as I mentioned at the top, the annual pledge drive. This lasts for four weeks. It's going to start next Tuesday on next Tuesday's episode. And basically what it means is that you are rewarded for signing up, basically. There's going to be tiers, the details of which will become clear next Tuesday. But the Patreon is still the main place as i mentioned at the top also we have facility now for one-off donations which we will be rewarding to over the course of the pledge drive but the subscription thing is really what we want you to do that's the best thing for us so we're going to be yeah incentivizing it on last year's pledge drive we had a t-shirt giveaway and some other giveaways too what i'm going to be doing additionally this year is using it as an opportunity to unveil some new stuff that is going to feature as bonus content on the Patreon going forward. And that's going to be video stuff. So we did a 
a little bit of a poll on our Discord server. That's hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord, by the way, to get into that. We did a poll of patrons asking what they wanted additionally from their subscription. And lots of people said they wanted tutorial videos and explainer videos about making tunes and that kind of stuff. So I've been figuring out how to do that. And I've just about done it. So there's going to be that sort of thing going up regularly in addition to the stuff that we've been doing over the past year or so, year and a half that we've been doing the Patreon, which is basically consisting of bonus podcasts. The classic one is Singles Club, which is me reviewing a top 10 of some genre or a top 10 sales chart or something in a irreverent kind of a way, a lighthearted kind of a way. It's based upon a video I did for Fact Magazine many years ago, which enraged quite a large section of the internet. So I do those regularly. And then the higher tier of the Patreon, which is called Musicality, you just get everything that we release on Hot Flush and all the other labels, basically. High quality download format. So it's basically a subscription. It's like a Bandcamp subscription, except through Patreon and part of the Patreon subscriber level which, by the way, is £8.50 for the musicalities here, £8.50 a month, and then the lower one is £3.50. So it's really quite cheap. If you buy our music regularly, then it's probably better just to do the musicality tier on Patreon, really, especially considering you get the music ahead of release date too, which is, I think, pretty good, definitely good value. And we have lots and lots of releases planned for the coming months, so there's going to be no shortage of stuff. But like I said, additionally to that, yeah, You'll get to watch videos of me doing stuff. And what better motivation to part with money than that? I don't think there is, is there really? That is the, the best possible motivation. Right. Considering you've been listening to me talking for ages, in fact, hardly any of the listeners to this podcast are probably still here. So congratulations, listener, for making it this far. I think I'm going to shut up. But we will have a guest next week and we will be launching the pledge drive next week too. So head over to hotflush.banghand.com tomorrow to take part in those enormous savings that you can make. Cop some of that vinyl, download some of the awesome music by people like Toasty, Classic Toasty, Closet Yee, Bodie, Sepulchre, Braille, Isaac Rubin, George Fitzgerald, all kinds of stuff on there, which is awesome and will be half price all day on Friday. So yeah, thanks for listening to this. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll check you back here same time, same place next week. Actually, it's not the same time, is it? Because it's Thursday. Next Tuesday for the next episode of a Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.